0: Psalm 46. I'm not sure if you guys have noticed this about human beings, but generally speaking, they struggle with change. And this seems especially true the older one gets, or at least that's what I'm told. I'm not old yet, so I'll let you know once I get there. Um, But we tend to idealize the past, forgetting Or at least minimizing the painful parts and focusing instead on the few good moments. This is why when I talk to young men or women uh, that maybe were abused physically or even sexually by their family, they'll often say, you know, all in all, I had a pretty good childhood. And, And this is not a new development. It's a problem that's existed in our lives ever since the fall of humanity. Uh, one of the best examples of this in, I think, broader societal terms is uh, named after a man named Ned Ludd. Anybody know Ned Ludd? Ned may or may not have been even a real person, we don't really know, but the story goes that he was a, a legendary weaver that broke two stocking frames, and stocking frames, for those of you who don't know, were mechanical knitting presses, very primitive but but mechanical nonetheless, Um, after being criticized for his weaving technique. In other words, the machine was getting it better than he was. And he got enraged and he broke the new machines uh, that were, in his mind, replacing the need for human beings. And during the 19th century in Nottingham, England, a movement began to rebel against industrialization in the textile industry. And these people named themselves after Ned Ludd. And they called themselves Luddites. They would break into factories, they would destroy new machines and that were being used to produce goods faster than human beings could. And they thought that by doing this, they could preserve their jobs. Perhaps you have heard of Luddites. Perhaps you have been called a Luddite at some point um, by others, and now you know why and what that means, but... Over the years, this term has come to describe someone who is opposed or resistant to technological change. Now, my hope, at least for those of you who have read ahead and already have read Psalm 46, you're asking yourself right now, why in the world is Dale talking about Luddites? How in the world does that have anything to do with our text this morning? And I promise you, I will answer that question. But first, let me... Set the stage for our psalm this morning because I think that is necessary before I give you the answer to that question. In my first sermon in this series, um, I had to cover two psalms. So I didn't really have enough time to give you the background and a lot of structure of the psalms of Korah, the sons of Korah. So let me let me give you a little bit of that here. The psalms of the son of Korah are a collection of nine psalms that form a literary structure Uh, known as a chiastic structure. It's Bradley's favorite word, chiastic structure. And I want you to look at this slide here. This kind of shows you the structure. So the idea of this literary structure is to draw you into the middle, right? So instead of working you up and the end being the most important part, this literary structure is trying to drive you to Psalm 45 and 46 as the most important parts. And so 42 and 43 go with 49 and 50, 44 goes with 47, 48, 45 with 46. Okay? So this is this is kind of the structure of the song. And, and it starts out with uh, if you remember, the 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 soul of a cast down believer, right? Just the in an individual by himself, just ugh, just I just can't feel God. I just can't connect with God. I just I want to be back with his people. Psalm 44 expanded that to the community, not just an individual, but it was the community that was waiting for the Lord. And then last week, Bradley talked about the conquering king and the covenant marriage. And this uh, was an amazing psalm um, where the psalmist breaks out into a love psalm. Right? One might be surprised that he's not singing some kind of formal hymn of praise when he sees the king. Instead, when, he, when he's faced with the king, all he can think and all he can feel and all he can write is love. The, the love that he has for his king. The conquering king that has come to rule and reign. And This love gives way to a covenantal, to a covenantal marriage of the king. To his bride, and Bradley talked about that a lot last week. And now we come here in Psalm 46, and one might expect to see this holy king and his bride enter the temple. The temple, after all, was the center point of God's presence with His people in the Old Testament. Please forgive me; I'm nursing a sinus infection, but because of his of this king, something has changed. There is no more mention of the temple once the king arrives in any of the following psalms in this section. So let's take a closer look at what this change means by diving deeper into Psalm 46. The psalm itself is naturally broken down into three clear sections separated by Pretty, It was really easy for me this week. I didn't have to figure out where the breaks were. The first is in verses 1 through 3 of 46. And these envision a time when all creation, land, mountain, seas, experience an apocalyptic roar as creation is unmade and God's people find refuge and help in helping Him. And then in the second section, verses 4 through 7, it depicts the city of God, strong and secure because of God's presence and protection. As the nations around it begin to crumble and fall. And then the third and final section is in verses 8 through 11. And this calls us, it's an an invitation you're going to see this morning. To look upon the wondrous works of our God. So let me read the first three verses and, and let's go through them. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help. In trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is known as a psalm of confidence. And that can be seen from the very first verse that we repeated multiple times this morning in our call to worship because I wanted it drilled into your head this morning that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalmist is looking forward to that day in the future when the world is remade. Now, it's hard for us, I think, to imagine that, right? Right? like we are so used to the world we know to to even fathom and to to think about mountains just suddenly being pitched into the ocean like that that is if we're honest such a foreign thought for us this morning i think the closest as i was reflecting and thinking about this this week is the the picture of what happened in japan when we dropped A nuclear bomb. We dropped two bombs. And 100,000 people instantly died. The city of Hiroshima was annihilated by the explosion. When I say annihilated, I'm not just talking about the people. 48,000 buildings ceased to exist. Countless, another 40,000 were structurally damaged to never be used again. Now during the psalmist's life, he he could never have imagined an atomic bomb going off and, and so much destruction in such a short period of time the way we can. But what he was familiar with was the concept of cities being raided and burned to the ground. The city was a symbol of security in the world. The Hebrew word for city means a walled enclosure. We, we think of a city, and we think of Lake City or Jacksonville, but a, a city could be 10 or 15 homes with a wall built around it. That was a city because it was, by definition, a walled enclosure, right? Well, why do we put the walls up? Security. We, we want to have protection. We want our kids to be able to play. Probably the same reason some of you put fences in your backyard So that you can let your kids out to play, but they're playing within a safe, defined space. And so whenever a raiding enemy was to show up, the people who, uh, perhaps the farmers that lived outside of the city would run into the city. The gates would be closed as the enemy approached. And the gates and the doors to the city would be closed so that then they could fire arrows from the top of the wall to repel the enemy from taking or sacking the city. The city then becomes a person's refuge and a people's strength, right? The city was a very present help in times of trouble. If you're just sitting out in your field and your farm and a raiding party comes up, you're gone. But with a city, with a wall around it, with, with fortifications, you now have a sense of security. This is important this morning because if we are honest, we too trust more in our own strength in our lives that we have made than we trust in God. This is the difference between living a life Of significance versus one of brief earthly success. That's the choice that is here for us in these first three verses this morning is that we can live a life of eternal significance by believing that God is our refuge. Or we can lead a life of brief earthly success by thinking we are our own Refuge. The secret this morning is whether you will choose significance or mere earthly success. The the secret is, do you believe that God is your refuge and your strength? Because there's a, a day coming, the psalmist says, when no earthly city will remain. All those walls you built that huge bank account you've accumulated, whatever it is you're putting your trust in, whatever is your refuge and strength, when things get a little chaotic and a little worried, the thing you turn to and go, okay, I'm going to be okay. If that's not God, you're in trouble. Because there's a day coming when there will be nothing left but God. Because in this psalm, he's referring to an apocalyptic event that affects far more than one city. Instead, this event affects the entire world. You you throw a mountain into the center of the ocean, and the world is going to feel that. And it sounds a lot like what we read in Revelation 21, when he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's Revelation 20, 1, 1, But for those who God is their refuge, they have no reason to fear. He goes on to tell us why now in the second section in verses 4 through 7. And let me read those to you. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of These verses are packed with so much biblical imagery and biblical references. I could easily preach several sermons on just these four verses, but I'm going to try to limit myself. The river first shows up that is talked about here in verse 4 in Genesis chapter 2 verse 10. When it talks about a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. It says in Genesis 2.10. The place where God and man dwelled together had at its center a river flowing out of it. And we see the river again in verse 4 in Ezekiel 47. Here the prophet has a, a vision of water running out from underneath the temple and becoming a river of life and healing. We see this prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus, Notice what he says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, that the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But for this river to start flowing in his disciples... He first had to deal with sin. This he did on the cross. Taking upon himself all of the wrath of God. And once the suffering of his life was made. He, because remember the wages of sin is death. Right? So once that offering was made. John wanted us to know that that river started to flow. In John 19.34. When he points out. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. There are more, but let me show you the final one in Revelation 22, 1 through 2. It says, "The angel Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the streets of the city, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. After the apocalyptic destruction of the world, a new creation, which will be a city that will enjoy the waters of a life giving river. Now, notice what he says in verse 5 God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this new city is found in Revelations twenty-one, twenty-two. When John's getting a tour of the city, and, and he points out something very odd. I, it has to be very odd in his Jewish mind, but he says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. In some ways, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because there was no temple in the garden. But like imagining a world that doesn't need a sun, it can be hard for us to let go of the image of the temple. But the psalmist doesn't seem to struggle with this like we do. He's not clinging to the past. Remember, he didn't even have the New Testament. We, we have all of this revelation that explains everything that's going to happen. He didn't have that. And yet, what do we find him clinging to? We find him clinging to his God. And his future, specifically, with God. And this future looks radically different from his past and his present. And yet when the nations rages and the, and the kingdoms totter, the psalmist reminds himself of God's voice, the voice that melts the earth. And he reminds himself that God is his fortress. I think this is the second thing we can learn this morning is when Turbulent times come in our lives. What do we cling to? Do, do you find yourself clinging to the past? Do you find yourself clinging to what makes you feel safe? Do you see how that is really clinging to yourself rather than to clinging to God? Or do you find yourself hiding when things get turbulent? Do, do you isolate yourself? Do you withdraw from God's city, the church? Is this city as described as the bride of Christ in Revelation? Or do we cling to God and his people? And this brings us to the final section, verses 8 through 11. He says, come, behold Is our fortress. The psalmist is now inviting us this morning to behold the works of the Lord. He starts out with this confidence that God is our refuge, a very present help in a time, in our times of trouble. And he ends with with an invitation. Look, come, look and see this invitation is here not only for the original readers of this psalm, but for us this morning to come and behold the works of the Lord. An invitation from one that will bring all wars to an end. From the one who will remove every weapon from earth. From knives and guns all the way up to F sixteens and nuclear bombs. And on that final day, the, the wicked will be judged and the repenters will be hidden from God's justice and God's mercy. See that there will be no need for weapons. That there will be no need for war because God will rule unilaterally. There, there's, there's no more pride and ego of arrogant men who, who build up mass stocks of weapons to bully the other. There, there will be no men shooting ballistic missiles towards other countries just to you know make himself feel better about himself. There will be no need for that. This is the invitation that the psalmist wants you to hear. Of a God that is going to do away with all of the pain and suffering that we humans have created year after year after year. Because of our sin. And on that final day, the, the wicked will be judged and the repenters will be hidden from God's justice. Notice I didn't say the righteous. That <laughs> This invitation from the one who will remake the world, who will wipe away every tear, restore his people to life, glorify their bodies like his own, bring them to the river and, and let them eat from the tree of life that stands on its shores. That invitation for us this morning is this be still and know that i am god be still and know that i am god that that is something a repenter can do but i dare say someone trying to be righteous will struggle With being still and knowing that he is God. Because those who are trying to be righteous in their own selves. Will be constantly busy (laughs) trying to chase a never-ending goal. And it's difficult for them to step back. And to be still and know that I am God. And yet for the repenter. So many benefits of repentance. But one of the beautiful benefits of repentance is, is as you've repented in that moment, you get an opportunity to do what? To be still and know He is God and I am not. Right? It, isn't that what sin is a reminder of in our life every single day? That I'm not God. Because, see, the danger is when we forget that, we start acting like we are God. And we begin to judge others because, again, we think we've got this figured out. We think we know the right way to do everything. And if these other people would just listen to me and just do it the way I'm telling them, their lives would be so much better. But it's different when we go to God and humbly confess our sin. We we specifically name this, Lord, this is is what I've done and this is why I need Jesus. Because He lived this life perfectly and and I, I can't even get up and go to work. I can't drive down the street without sinning. And every time that we repent we get the opportunity to be still and know that he is god i find so many people struggle with this concept of being still and knowing that he is god and i would argue that the reason that they struggle with it is they don't repent or they don't repent very often maybe every once in a while they feel like they're just caught in something big and they have to confess and repent of that. But every morning when you get up and you pray, or every night when you pray, whatever works for you, and you confess, Lord, I see where I failed today. I see where I did this. And specifically, I was, man, I was offensive to this person. That opens up an opportunity to then be still and know that he is God. When we're trying to be righteous in and of ourselves, we're so busy praying for all these other people that they get their lives right. They'll just listen to me. Right? That we don't stop and just be still and know that He is God. This is this invitation this morning from from the god the psalmist is talking about it's an invitation to eternal significance not momentary fleeting significance in this earthly realm he, he's inviting you to have eternal significance And that your life in this temporary earthly realm will have eternal significance. But only those who take refuge in Him will be saved when that day comes. It's not those who take refuge in themselves. It's not those who take refuge in The lives that they've built or whatever it is they rely on for security and protection. Whatever they turn to when trouble comes and change happens. It's for those who turn and trust in God. And while none of us know when this day will come that the psalmist is talking about. What we do know is that once we die, it's too late to take refuge in Him. And I know change can be hard. But don't be a Luddite when it comes to your relationship with God. Don't try to fight and go back to the old ways of trying to make yourself holy enough to be in God's presence. The temple is gone. The king has come. He is establishing a new city and he's inviting you to be a part of it. Instead of trying to justify yourself this morning. Instead just be still. And know that he is God. Let the one who said. He was the living water. Let let that living water flow into your heart. And let him make you holy this morning. Just like that. Samaritan woman at the well. That that woman that Bradley talked about last week that the, the picture of the bride of Christ who's been married five times and so ashamed she can't even come to the well when all the other people are there so she comes alone. And that's that's the picture of his bride. Desperate, humble, in need. That's that's the picture that God wants us to have this morning. Bring him all of your unrighteousness and let him cleanse you and give you the living water that will never run dry this morning. I invite you to be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this invitation. And Lord, my heart's prayer is that if there is a person in this room that doesn't know you, Lord, that this morning would be the morning that they would just be still and know that you are God. They would behold the works of your hands, how how you are bringing justice to this injustice that we call a world that you are making all things right. And Lord you're inviting us to to live in your city where there will be no war. There will be no suffering. There will be no separation. Father, help us this morning. And Lord, for those that are here this morning that that have put their faith and trust in you, but over time, slowly but surely, they've taken refuge back in themselves instead of you, I pray that we would confess and repent this morning. We would let go of all of those things that we are looking to for security and comfort and a a very present help in a time of trouble, Lord. And we'll instead look to You. Whatever it is we tend to cling to, Lord, I, I pray that You would convict us of that this morning. And that Your Holy Spirit would begin to change our hearts. Draw us back to you. Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A couple quick analysis.